Matthew chapter 6. Nope, Matthew chapter 7. I'm all over the place. I'm sorry, guys. Starting verse 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the reading of God's word, and you can be seated. So if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We are currently teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' most famous teaching. And uh, just for a little intro, a little background, um, we've been saying this almost every week, just it's a good reminder Contrary to what some people might think, the Sermon on the Mount is not teaching people how to get into the kingdom of God. It's not teaching you even how to become a Christian. Uh, Many people take it that way, and they approach it wrongly, and they see just an insurmountable uh, mountain that cannot be climbed. And so many people are like, oh, who could possibly do this? Uh, The Bible makes it clear that entrance to God's kingdom is only through a gift of his grace. Not a a single one of us can achieve the righteous life on our own that God requires for entrance into his kingdom. Uh, And so, God knows us, and he sent Jesus, his one-of-a-kind son. And Jesus lived a perfect life for us. He died Uh, our death at the cross, and and he invites us into the kingdom of God. The sermon is also not teaching how we stay in the kingdom of God. Some people see it that way. It's kind of the house rules, and if you don't keep the rules, well, you get kicked out. Um, The sermon is rather a description of the character and conduct of those who already belong to God's kingdom. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is what it looks like, uh, what God wants to do. It's the vision for what God wants to do in your life. It's the vision for what God wants to do in my life. And I know that it's very popular uh, in our day and age to kind of choose levels, tiers of Christianity. You know, you've got your, like, pastor tier, which is like, that's way up there, you know. Super spiritual people go for that. And then you got, you know, kind of your average Christian who goes, you know, attends church and listens to Caleb and does those types of things, but isn't really invested in the church. But what we see here is it's not so much about what we do, but who we are that Jesus is concerned about. And that's the vision that he's casting for us. He wants to make us into a certain kind of people, a kind of people who love indiscriminately, a kind of people who are filled with mercy for the deserving and the undeserving. Kind of people who are generous to the undeserving poor and the deserving poor, the categories that we create. And that's what this sermon is about. It describes the work that God is doing in his people and wants to do in us, what he's making us into by his spirit and grace upon us. And so the sermon has been 
used for centuries by the church to shape and form God's people into the way of Jesus. And we believe that this is what God will do with us as well. Now, last week we looked at the teaching about judging wrongly or harshly, as Nikolai said, um, modern world's favorite verse, no longer John 3.16, but instead Matthew 7.1, judge not that you be not judged. Uh, we looked at the need in judging, in assessing, we looked at the need for self-examination, humility, and God's grace toward us when we judge others and in our judgments. Now, in our section this morning, Jesus kind of changes gears, or it seems that way anyway, and he begins to speak of petitioning the Father. Now, I think this is weird. I don't know if you do. All of a sudden, Jesus goes from judging and judging harshly, talking about dogs and pigs and being trampled, and then he says, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. And this just, I mean, this just rings of like sage wisdom, doesn't it? Like Confucius say, ask. And you, the ancients once said, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you find. And, and Jesus actually is in line uh, with many of the ancient uh, wisdom and virtue teachers here. It's very interesting, the transition that happens here. And so Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, all metaphors for petitioning God, asking requests from God. He says, do this, and he insists that we should be sure of answers and results based not upon our repetition, and some people take it that way, like it's, a, it's climax, ask, seek, knock, it's, it's a progression. Jesus, rather, says, based upon the character of the Father, you will find, you will receive, the door will be open to you. So the first thing I would ask of us as we kind of take in this passage is, do we believe that? Do we believe that when we ask of the Father, we receive? That when we seek, we will find, and when we knock, the Father opens the door to us? Do we believe that? Do we believe that God is more willing to give than we are to receive? These are absolutely vital questions to the life of a follower of Jesus. Vital questions to the life of a Christian. Do you believe that God is more willing to give to you than you are to receive? More willing to give than you are to ask? Do we believe that God is that kind? Now, at first glance, this passage doesn't seem to be connected with what comes before, <clears throat> but seems to be a standalone exhortation on prayer, which, when you really look at the Sermon on the Mount, that would be really confusing. Uh, Jesus is not a modern-day sermon. It's like, well, let me just wrap up my sermon here with three points to remind you of what we just you know, looked over beforehand. Some people take it that way, and that's how I took it for many years. As I looked more into this, though, it seems rather that Jesus is continuing to talk about judgment. Judging or evaluating correctly, but now in regards to God, our Father. So what is Jesus saying? Well, in the same way that we wrongly or harshly judge other human beings, <coughs> we also wrongly and harshly judge the character of God the Father. And Jesus is determined in this sermon 
to get into our hearts and minds the gracious character of the Father. So, let, let, let me just remind you. Remember when Jesus says he's teaching us to love and not discriminate in our love, and he says, you know, love your enemies, do good to those uh, who curse you and, and those who would, um, you know, speak all manner of evil. Against you. I know I'm mixing some verses here, but Jesus says, in order that you may be like your Father who is in heaven, who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God is so kind and gracious that he showers goodness on people irregardless of their righteousness, irregardless of their goodness, irregardless of whether they deserve it or not. That's just the kind of God that he is. He's kind. He's gracious. He's patient. He's merciful. And Jesus goes at lengths to get this into our heads. Remember when we did look at prayer. You don't need to do all of these things. You don't need to beg God. You don't need to use big, long, wordy prayers because your Father, this is a tender word that Jesus is using here, a tender term. Your Father sees, your Father already knows. See, Jesus is going at lengths to get us to see and to understand the kindness and gracious character of the Father. So, a distinguishing mark of Jesus' people should be this, that we believe and practice the generous love of the Father. This should be a huge marker of God's people. Remember, Jesus said that it is by our love for one another that all men will know that we are his disciples. It is that love of the Father that is worked out in us and through us. That is the distinguishing mark of all marks of God's people. Love. This love, this out-of-this-world kind of love that comes from the Father. So it is absolutely vital that we answer this question correctly. Do you believe that God is more willing to give than you are to receive? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you as you are and not as you should be? So Jesus, what he does here is he <coughs> appeals to everyday life, normal family dynamics, and he says this, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? For me, it was less confusing to take this part first and then to kind of work, work my way back. So as I mentioned before, it seems that Jesus is really making it a point in this sermon to lay out for us the character of God as the gracious, loving Father. And Jesus appeals to the kindness of earthly fathers that are obviously flawed and sinful, right? We're, we're broken. We don't get things right all the time. You know, we, you know, blow our lid, we get angry, sometimes we discipline out of anger instead of out of love, right? We, we get it wrong, mothers and fathers alike. Yet, 
A father would not give his hungry child a serpent instead of a fish or a scorpion instead of an egg. Even when we hear shocking stories of gross child abuse in our days, part of the shock is this. How could a parent treat their own child this way? Right? I mean, that's the shock and horror of the whole thing. Like, my God, there's that kind of evil in the world that people would do this to their own flesh and blood. So it, it is very well known throughout history and culture that fathers and mothers generally give good gifts to their children, care dearly for their children, want good things for them. And so Jesus' argument here is simply from the lesser to the greater. If the best of earthly fathers give good gifts and show loving care to their children, how much more the Father that is in heaven? I can't remember the passage right now, but there is a place, I believe it's in Paul, where he says that God is the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named or gets their identity from. I believe it's Ephesians. But the idea there is that every father and mother are modeled after, excuse me, the best fathers and the best mothers are simply a whisper or an echo of what God the Father is like. Psalm 103 is a beautiful passage for us to understand the kind of father that God is. And I don't have this in my notes, but I know you'll bear with me. He's the kind of God who forgives our inner twistedness. Excuse me, the kind of father that forgives our inner twistedness. The kind of father who heals our diseases. The kind of father who would redeem our life from death. A father who would crown us with steadfast love and mercy. Who would satisfy us with every good thing that we need. He's a kind of father that does not deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us evil for evil. For as the heavens are so high above the earth, the psalm says, so great is his hesed, covenant, unfailing love toward those who are his. And as far as east is from west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear his name. He remembers our frame that we are but dust. The psalm also talks about when we sin, that his mercy, God disciplines us not out of anger, but he disciplines us in love. It's this incredible thing. Now, moms and dads, maybe you've done this a few times in your life. This is a really difficult thing, isn't it? Uh, the other week, this is the day I got the Father of the Year award, um, Grace was out, I was with the kids, I was feeling crummy, and, uh, but the kids wanted to go outside, so we went outside, and I'm like standing on the front porch, and me and Judah are talking, and Hudson, Hudson's crazy, Hudson's seven, and he's the kind of guy that rides his bike while looking backwards the whole time, and he loves to, like, go behind the parked car and then at the last second, you know, like, go around it. And so I come out there, and Judah's like, oh, Hudson already hit a car, a parked car, you know? <laughs> okay, great, you know? And the lady came out, and she was helping him up. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I was, like, I was 10 seconds behind you. How did this happen, right? 
So make this shorter. Uh, so I'm like, you've got to be careful, right? You, gotta, you just got to watch out for what's going on. I kid you not, 60 seconds later, Hudson is whipping down the street, and I see this massive truck coming down, you know, like Ford 350 or something, and it's flying down our street. And I just see Hudson on the sidewalk, and he just, at the last second, goes down the curb, and he's going right for this truck. And just from the depths of my being, Hudson! You know, it's just like, <laughs> I, 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 seriously, my kid, he was a foot from death, maybe less. And if I had not screamed his name, you, he, would not, he would be no more. It was the worst. I was so angry. I was so angry. And it took everything within my being not to wring his neck. <laughs> Truly, I was just like, get in the backyard. Get off the bike. Burn the bike. You know, like, <laughs> but like, seriously, just everything in me. And there are times when I can do it right. When I can discipline in love, and I actually held my temper that day, thank God, because, yeah, it would have been bad. But I say all that just, just to bring out the point, this is not the way God disciplines us, which is incredible. God disciplines us. It's out, I'm, well, of course, I mean, why am I saying this? Why am I angry with my kid? Because of my great love for him, because it would kill me if I lost my beloved son. But God, even in his discipline, that it's all done in gracious love, it's all done for our good. Uh, That's the verse. His anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Incredibly gracious and loving is God our Father, far greater than even the best parents. So then, why the character assassination of God? Why do we doubt his love and his goodness? Why do I think that everyone deserves it but me? Like, oh yeah, I get that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for some people, but not for me. Well, the suspicion of God goes back to the very dawn of history. Remember, it was the serpent that first suggested to the woman Eve that God didn't really have her best intentions in mind. I'll read from Sally Lloyd-Jones, Jesus' story Bible here. It says, as soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you, he whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? so harmless. Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. It says the snake's word hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me, she wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all. and You'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too, and a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. And it wasn't a dream. It was a nightmare. This lie lives on with us today. And if we aren't suspicious of God's love, we 
twist it. We turn it to be a certain type of love. Uh, we turn God's love into, you know, the God of rules and best intentions, right? And it turns into basically this religious tyrant who only cares about pious acts of religiosity devoid of joy, emotion, and life. And you can extract some of this from the Puritans, of course, if you read it in such a way. It seems to me that the reason we judge others <coughs> harshly, so let's bring it back for a moment. <coughs> I've got something in my throat, excuse me. So to bring this back together, it seems to me that the reason we judge others harshly and wrongly, Matthew 7, 1 through 6, is first and foremost because we have wrong ideas about God the Father. Skewed ideas about what God is like, what God cares about, what God desires from us and for us. See, if I believe that God is withholding, then I will withhold from others. If I believe that God is harsh, then I will be harsh with others. But as we've seen throughout the study in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has shown the Father to be full of grace and love, the author of all good and incredibly gracious to both the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, sometimes it's crazy to me. Like, uh, I don't know if you've fallen into this camp, but at one point in time, this is something I struggled with. I have friends that have struggled this way and still struggle this way. Christians wondering... Am I really a Christian? Am I really one of God's people? And they want to use all this criteria to try to figure it out. Does God really love me? Does God really love me? That's what they're really asking. It's like, dude, God loves really wicked people that don't ever ask that question. Yes, he absolutely loves you. Absolutely. People that never give God the time or day or think about him or wonder, should I do this righteous thing? Should I do this kind and merciful thing? Maybe I should. People that like that never enters into their brain, God loves them. <laughs> so does God love his people? Does God love you? Yes, he does. Absolutely he does. Without doubt, he loves you. And there isn't a thing you have to do to earn that love. And Jesus is going at length to tell his kingdom people specifically about the loving and gracious character of the Father. The God, excuse me, the Father that not only wills but pursues our flourishing. Remember, that's what this sermon is about, the flourishing people of God. That Jesus is bringing us into the flourishing that the Father created us to live out. I think we have to, in, in moments like this, we have to go back to the Bible's favorite verse, where God tells us who he is and what he's like. Here's from the NLT. It says, The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, I'm Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Listen to this. I lavish unfailing love 
to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty or those who do not repent. Just listen to that again. And I I know that so much of our questioning the character of God, the love of God, is because we are not immersing ourselves in the biblical story. Because we are allowing the voices of the serpent, the voices of condemnation in our own heart, to speak louder, to have a greater influence over us than the word of Scripture, the word of the Father. But Jesus goes at length to tell us about God's character. And here in Exodus 34, right, we're being told inherent in the character of God is mercy and kindness. He doesn't just show mercy and kindness. It's part of who he is. It is the first thing he tells us about himself, that he's kind, that he's merciful, a hugely defining character. And though we often make characters of God as angry, wrathful, A God concerned with piety or holiness, nothing could be further from the truth when we look at the pages of Scripture. I love the way Paul in Titus 3 describes God's character in response to human sin and evil. Listen to what he says first. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Titus chapter 3. Yeah, so listen to this. Verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish. This is moral fools uh, rejecting God's care and love and kindness. We were disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Sounds like a great group of people, doesn't it? And how does God respond With kindness. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We have to understand, this is from Dallas Willard, That God does not love us without liking us through gritted teeth, as Christian love is sometimes thought to do. Rather, out of the eternal freshness of his perpetually self-renewed being, the Heavenly Father cherishes the earth and each human being upon it. The fondness, the endearment, the the unstintingly affectionate regard of God toward all his creatures is the natural outflow of what he is to the core, which we vainly try to capture with our tired but indispensable old word, love. I love it. It's what he is at the core of his being. He is kind. The gospel begins with kindness. The gospel begins with mercy. Now, What does this have to do with judgment? This sounds like a Pauline sermon, Char. Aren't we in Matthew? Yes, we are. But here's the deal. If you see God as unkind, as withholding, as harsh, two things. 
you will not ask the things that you need from your father. You will not receive the things that you need from your father because you believe he's withholding, and you will be withholding harsh and ungracious with others. That's what this is teaching. As Jesus finishes, how would you like other people to treat you? Then do that. This is the law and the prophets. Listen to this. I remember, I've been saying throughout these studies that the parables give incredible insight to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So do you remember the parable of the two sons? Yes, we do, right? Sometimes it's called the prodigal son. Uh, but Jesus doesn't call that. Okay, so let's, let's look at it. So in context, this is what happens. Uh, it's in Luke. And it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So just think of that scene right away, right? We know the dynamics of the Gospels. The tax collectors and the sinners are gathering around, but somebody else is there too. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This is a judgment This is a prejudice. This is a looking down upon Jesus and these type of people. And so it says, so Jesus told these parables. So listen to this. First, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep and how the shepherd leaves the 99 to look for the one. And when he returns with the lost sheep, he invites friends and family to celebrate a a joyous celebration because that sheep that was lost is now found. Jesus tells a second parable, the parable of the lost coin. And it's about a woman who lost one coin, just one, right? But what does she do? She cleans the whole house. She sweeps every nook and cranny. And when she finds that one coin, what does she do? She calls family and friends, and she says, we're having a party because I found that coin. They celebrate greatly because what was lost is now found. It says, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the food that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And then when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, I'm starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son. Threw his arms around him, kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring, the family ring, on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf 
and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, in the meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. He said, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he is him back safe and sound. Now the older brother became angry and refused to go into the celebration. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all of these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? The father responded, My son, you are always with me, and everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Do you see how different this parable is in the context in which Jesus told it? So we call it the parable of the prodigal son, and there is definitely a lesson to be learned by focusing on on him and maybe speaking to you that I spoke to a moment ago, your wonder about the love of the father for you. Oh, if the father loves the prodigal and receives him home with such generosity and graciousness, that's the heart of the father toward you. There's a lesson there. But we often fail to see what else is going on in this parable, namely the father and the older brother. So first, (coughs) an observation to make is this. Both sons are shocked by the actions and character of the father. One son lived a life of rebellion to his father, being suspicious of the father's intentions and family way of life, and was shocked when the father graciously and generously restored him to his place, running to receive him. This is like unheard of in in Jewish teachings or Jewish life, that the father would run. This was disgraceful. That he would embrace him, kiss him, put the family ring and garments on him, and of course, slaughter the fatted calf to celebrate his return. The younger son, you know, he's got his speech all worked up. He's going to, you know, make a case for why he could be in the house but not be a son and not receive all the blessings and benefits. Then the second son, the older brother, is also shocked by his father receiving his younger brother so readily. What does he say? I have always kept the rules. I have always done what is right, what is right. And he says this, yet you never gave me anything. You never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, he squandered property, prostitutes, and this and that. And he comes home and you kill the fatted calf for him. Here's my question. And here's what I think Jesus is getting at. Could it be that the older son keeps the rules, yet he is also living outside the love of the father? The father responds, you're always with me and everything I have belongs to you. Almost as if to say, why didn't you ask? Everything I have belongs to you. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Everything I have belongs to you, children. Why do you not ask? Why do you not receive? Because you do not believe in the generosity of God and it shows in the way that you judge others. 
Your view of the younger brother is indicative of a heart that is in fear of God, that does not believe in the father heart of God. Because the older brother has wrong ideas about about the father, it shows in his disdain for the younger brother, and he has also been kept from enjoying the love, blessing, and riches of the relationship with the father. Remember, it says that Jesus told these parables in response to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. These religious leaders don't get the generosity of God, the father, and it shows in their disdain of others. And I think that that's really what Jesus is teaching here. For many of us, the reason we judge others harshly and wrongly is because we really don't understand the character of God. We have judged him wrongly. Our assessment of him is wrong, which in turn keeps us from asking, seeking, and knocking for the good things we need from him. We, too, are kept out of the love of the Father. We don't really think he wants to give us good gifts. And so Jesus wraps up this teaching with the golden rule. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So let's talk about the golden rule for a minute, right? The golden rule is not so much a rule, but rather a vision that Jesus is calling us into. It is an invitation to virtue by giving a vision of how to relate to other people. And it is, in line with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, it's an outworking of the wholeness and the greater righteousness that Jesus has been teaching us. See, when that relationship is healed with the Father, when we know the love and the graciousness of the Father, when it really gets down into our hearts, it begins to change every other relationship. That's what the gospel does. That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to permeate our lives. It's meant to make us new creations. We think differently. We act differently. We speak differently. We have a different posture because now we understand the gracious love of God through Christ. Now, unfortunately, some of you, even in our fellowship, see the role of a Christian as the moral policeman of the culture. You're like the older brother, oh yeah, the younger brother can come back, but yeah, he does need to be a slave. He does need to be a servant. He needs to earn his keep. He needs to prove that he's loyal to the family. He needs to do all these things. He needs to jump through these hoops. We feel that it's our place to denounce, rebuke, and even punish evil. But, as the sermon has alluded to many times, when we see this as our first and foremost calling, we end up using force and violence to do God's work. We do God's work with the devil's means. Commands, rules, and punishment might feel effective for you, but it has no power to change the life and no power to transform the heart. You are the older brother of the parable. Have you forgotten that the gospel begins with kindness? How did God in Christ treat you? That's the question. Again, I, I know that we can think like this is this brings effect if we just deal with people this way. But the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Try that on. Practice that first and foremost. That is the call of Jesus. And of course, much of the Sermon on the Mount is nuanced. It is wisdom literature. 
there are times where we do need to stand our ground. There are times, absolutely, where we speak the truth, and we speak truth to power. We speak truth to evil. We protect the weak, and sometimes we have to do that by force. But what I find in the church is that so many times, force is our first go-to. No, not for the people of God. Peace, mercy, kindness, forgiveness, and love are the characteristics that mark the people of God. And if we do not practice these things, it is we ourselves in the end that will miss out. We will find ourselves outside of the kingdom. We ourselves will find ourselves outside of the love and relationship with the Father. So in a world and culture that is full of younger brothers, a world so obviously in rebellion against God, experience the fallout, brokenness, emptiness, and disillusionment that comes from trying to live on our own, in our own way in God's world, what will keep us from being religious Pharisees, self-righteous older brothers, and harsh, judgy people is this law of love found only through the gospel. Jesus is the true and greater older brother. Think about this parable. In every, excuse me, in the first two parables, Jesus tells the story, something gets lost and someone goes looking for it, right? Sheep goes, sheep goes lost? Doesn't even make sense. <clears throat> the sheep is lost. There it is. And the shepherd leaves and goes and looks for it. The coin is lost. The woman goes on a search to find it. But in the parable of the two sons, why does no one go looking? Because it was the responsibility of the older brother to go. That's why. And he disdains the younger brother. And yet it is his job. It is his role to go out and look for him. Jesus is the true and greater older brother who spent his inheritance to bring us back into relationship with the Father. He is the one who crossed heaven and earth at cost of his own life for us to bring us into the incredible, generous, and gracious love of the Father. To treat others as we would want to be treated, to love our neighbor as ourselves, or rather to treat others how God in Christ has treated us is the gospel by which we have been saved. And to live any other way is to deny the faith by which we have been saved. So God is calling us, church, to be a community where the generosity and graciousness of the gospel is the vision and relationship that forms all other relationships. God's mercy and kindness towards us through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So in closing, can I do this? Can I cast a vision for what I believe this looks like? So for many years, we have been here at Refuge, and we're trying to figure out what we're doing, to be honest with you. Um, and we know that we want a fellowship, and we want Jesus and the gospel to be the center of that. We know that we want people to come to know Jesus. We also know that we live in a highly secular society where people are not open to the gospel like they were in the 1980s and the 90s and things like this. And so some people come and they say, why don't you do outreach? Why don't you do street evangelism? Why don't you do this and why don't you do that? So what do we do? Well, I believe that God has given us a vision to build up this community in such a way, personal relationships, bearing the burdens of one another, helping one another work out sin, 
and work in righteousness in the way of Jesus. I believe God has called us to do that, and as we do that, we become this agent of salt and light in Santa Rosa and Sonoma County. And it's beautiful because we've been seeing people be attracted to that. It's the light that draws people in, but we've also seen it go out into the culture and permeate. We've seen it um, affect people that are outside and aren't going to come into our community. And my wife and I have experienced this in many different ways, just fascinating the way people come into our lives or we, they get exposed to the way of Jesus just through our family, through our marriage, through just the way that we live our lives. And so I read this from a book called Love Thy Body, and I think that this is a really great way to understand what we are trying to do here at Refuge. And so I'll read this, and then we'll close. So Nancy Piercy, she says, As the surrounding society loses its connecting glue, the most important response is to build local, small-scale forms of community teaching our children and congregations how to reestablish strong, life-giving relationships in a world falling apart. What matters at this stage in the culture is the construction of local forms of community within which civility and the intellectual and moral life can be sustained through the dark ages which are already upon us. Our families and churches must become centers of civilization that reach out beyond themselves with a model form of community. The strongest Christian communities, families, congregations, groups of singles, are those driven by a larger vision, a sense of ministry. Listen to this. If God has given you a dependable income, a loving spouse, a strong church community, a reliable group of friends, those gifts are not just for you. They are to equip you to reach out and draw in those who are broken and searching, the younger brothers. God is giving you the opportunity to bring hope that Christianity is real and not just words, to put flesh and bones on the message of hope and healing. Christians must be prepared to minister to the wounded, the refugees of the secular moral revolution whose lives have been wrecked by its false promises of freedom and autonomy. We are at a unique moment in history where we have an incredible opportunity to become safe havens where people witness the beauty of relationships reflecting God's own commitment and faithfulness. You guys, it's simply extending that love of the Father. Becoming those kind of people that have been so transformed by the love of the Father that we receive those who are being let down, dashed to pieces by the false promises of the culture in which we live in to go out and to rescue those, to bring them in, to give them acceptance, love, security, a vision of community and life the way God meant us to live, a life of flourishing. That's the call of the church. And that's what we believe God has called refuge to do and is calling us to continue in. So Lord, we ask this morning that you would do exactly that. And Lord, we, we remember this morning, Lord, that that begins first and foremost between us and you. 
Lord, us speaking to our own hearts that the gospel begins with kindness. That we are not saved by the good that we have done or by the evil that we have not done. But Lord, we are saved by your gracious gift of Christ. His death for us. His rescue. His searching for us and bringing us in. Lord, would this truth break in on our hearts so that we would love the younger brothers of our culture. Lord, that we would be kind and when our kindness is taken advantage of, Lord, that we would be more kind. Lord, that we would not resolve to repay evil with evil, as Paul says. But Lord, that we would follow the way of Jesus and respond with love and mercy and generosity. Make us into those people then, Lord, that can be confident, Lord, to ask you the things that we need because we are convinced of your love for us and your love for the world. Do that in us, we pray. Amen.